Skeletons and fossils in museum cases look like interesting artifacts to most of us. But to Dr. Anna Berensmeyer, they tell deep stories of long-ago life. She's curator of vertebrae paleontology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History and the recent recipient of a major award from the National Academies of Science. As the third and final in our series on three federal scientists who win these awards, Dr. Berensmeyer joins me now. Good to have you on. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Tell us about the type of work that you do, curator of vertebrae Paleontology sounds like all you do is collect bones, but it's really much more than that, isn't it? It is indeed. Curators here at the National Museum really have three jobs. We are curator of our specimens, uh, bones, and all kinds of other fossils. And then we also do a lot of public education through our exhibits. And we publish a lot of papers on our research. We're really called research curators. And We have a great opportunity to give our time to the public service on all three of those items. And looking at your bio, it says that you are working at the interfaces between recent and ancient and between the disciplines of anthropology, geology, paleobiology, evolutionary biology, and ecology. So maybe translate for for us what that exactly means. Well, um, when I was a graduate student, I told my committee that I wanted to be interdisciplinary because I thought that would be a lot more fun than just uh, being in one of the the usual uh, sort of academic disciplines, and they were very skeptical. But I started out as a geologist. I was trained as a paleontologist when I was uh, getting my Ph.D., And then I started wondering how things became fossil, so I started a project in a modern ecosystem in East Africa, and I've been able to follow my pet bones, as I call them, carcasses that I marked and followed through time over 40 years, and learning a lot about how things do and do not become fossil. So that's the ecology uh, side of things, and then it all kind of relates back to how things evolve and uh, some things go extinct and some, some things don't. So um, I feel like this recent award kind of recognized that, that long-ago goal of being interdisciplinary. It sounds like you're a pioneer in something called taphonomy, which is how things become fossilized. And that process, I guess, tells us as much as the fossil itself does? It can. Actually, you know, a lot of things that have lived never had the chance to become fossils. So what we see uh, in our museum cases and drawers and the huge collections is just a, a small part of all the things that have lived. But we have to use that part to uh, try to decipher the past and, and understand all the organisms that have gone before us. So uh, taphonomy really is, is kind of a a take a study of how things do and do not become fossils, and so we can try to get meaning out of what we do have and then expand that to understand all the things that we are missing. And how do things become fossils? Uh, well, uh, long ago I had a, a friend, and we thought, well, if we don't get jobs, uh, we can uh, uh, start a, uh, a company about how to become a fossil. And um, one of the best ways is is to um, get into the right uh, burial environment, which would be a place where the bones would become mineralized. And um, those kinds of places are in in lakes or in river deltas. The most important thing really is to be buried quickly. Uh, Volcanic eruptions can do that as well. Um, And then have the right chemistry in that burial environment so that the bones are 
are not dissolved, but rather replaced or filled in with minerals that make them last for millions and millions of years. So it's it, it's a highly varied uh, depending on the kind of organism. But for bones, um, I can I can say a lot about it now. And there aren't that many environments uh, where all those uh, criteria are met. And much of your work involves the origins of humankind. And I guess our understanding of when and where that happened has really changed over the past 30, 40 years, hasn't it? It has. And I was very lucky to um, be involved in some of the early work in East Africa uh, when I started uh, as a graduate student. I got involved with uh, Richard Leakey's project in northern Kenya, and that's where I did my dissertation. And although I was a geologist and interested in paleontology, I worked with the anthropologists and the archaeologists to provide context for their finds. And that includes both the environments where these early humans and their ancestors lived and how old uh, they were. So... Uh, that context tends, uh, ends up being really important and uh, helped, I would like to say that my ancestors and the study of my ancestors helped me uh, set up my career. Even though I'm not an anthropologist, I just work very closely with them. And the team kind of atmosphere is something I really, really enjoy. We're speaking with Dr. Anna Berensmeyer, curator of vertebrae paleontology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History, and working in a museum environment where you have to convey, to some degree, what it is that we've learned to the average public looking at this exhibit. It could be, I guess, dinosaur bones and fossils and rocks. What's the process by which you help create the exhibit material, which is probably one one hundredth of what you actually know about the thing that somebody's looking at? Well, that's a really good question and very timely because we're heading toward opening our new uh, fossil halls on June 8th of this year. And uh, that's a 10-year project, which I became involved with that long ago now, along with other curators. But we have a, a huge team uh, involving exhibit people, writers, uh, and contractors of various sorts that come in. We have big meetings. Uh, we've had a whole series of them to design the hall and to decide, make those hard decisions about what we could show the public and what we just would have to leave out. So, of course, it's, it's focused a lot on dinosaurs. They're uh, one of the great uh, vehicles for getting public educators um into science and the public to understand all the things that we know by focusing on some of these iconic creatures. But the whole um, process uh, involves a, a tension in a way between what we say, how we express things in English, and uh, getting that accurately portrayed and uh, not too watered down so that the public who want more information can get that as well as just the excitement of seeing these amazing specimens. I always thought they could maybe put a QR code on the exhibit, and for someone that really wanted to go in-depth, they could point their phone at it and get something a little bit more encyclopedic. Uh, that's something we did consider. Um, what we have run up against is that that takes uh, a lot of a more organization and electronic um, like media-friendly environment for the whole exhibit hall, which is 
is huge. It's been um, renovated uh, as best we could. But um, what we decided on is that we wouldn't do that, but we are creating an app for especially aimed at people who have some visual impairment. And that is going to be an audio. It's not exactly an audio tour, but it will allow people to go through the exhibit and stop at particular places and then get more information uh, through uh, the voice. Uh, it'll be a, a automatically voiced uh, part of the app. And indeed, uh, I, I wish we could do more like that. But we also want people to come and just be awestruck by um, standing in front of these and not, you know, if, they, if they're curious, they can go uh, and find a lot more on the web. And eventually, we hope we'll have a really rich web presence as well that they can learn more from. What sparked your first interest in science of this nature? Well, I had a, a wonderful upbringing in the Midwest uh, by parents who were very interested in science, although my father was an architect. And my mother and aunts were just interested in natural history. So they started giving me uh, fossils and rocks to puzzle over in books when I was pretty young. And we had uh, a farm that we went to, and that farm allowed us, my brothers and me, to go looking for fossils. We found um, ancient marine creatures like uh, brachiopods and, and uh, crinoids. And uh, I just loved being outdoors and trying to figure out puzzles that way. So um, even though I started out as a uh, art major, I, I gravitated toward toward doing geology and then paleontology. Also, I have to say that National Geographic magazines were a wonderful window onto the world uh, of fossils and lots of other things from the viewpoint of a, a city in the Midwest. Now, you have spent some time promoting other women in science, including something called the Bearded Lady. Tell us about that. <laughs> the Bearded Lady Project was actually begun by uh, a woman who was here as a postdoctoral fellow for a while and some of her early career colleagues who were filmmakers. And she felt like she, when she went off to a job, she was very isolated because there were so few other women. Um, and she was she's a paleobotanist, which means she studies ancient plants. And so she thought, well, you know, there's this this image of paleontologists as these uh, bearded, rough-looking men walking over the outcrops with their hammers. And and she wanted to try to dispel that, that stereotype. So she started with her friends, this uh, Bearded Lady Project, where actually many of us were asked to put on uh, facial hair and, and um, strike some of these poses. And But we were obviously women. Um, and it then turned into a, a, a small feature film um, that they or a documentary, and uh, also a, a series of portraits which were displayed at national meetings and are traveling around. And when you stand in front of those portraits, you just can't help realizing that uh, everyone has this kind of bias. So they're surprised to see that here are women in beards and mustaches, and uh, what does that mean? And it provokes a huge amount of uh, discussion. So it's a, a website where you can find out also about how many of these women have made their careers um, kind of in spite of those early uh, biases and stereotypes 
and uh, I think it's done a lot for uh, allowing more of us to feel comfortable being who we are. And now you have received a pretty major award, a six-figure award from the National Academies of Science. What does that mean to you, and what do you plan to do with some of that money? Well, it was an amazing um, surprise and a, a wonderful thing to be recognized like this. And then to have the monetary award is just fantastic. And I'm going to have it deposited into my research account here at the Smithsonian so that I can turn it into more uh, research and mentoring of early career people for my research, I think, in Kenya on on this uh, ecosystem where I'm learning more and more each time I go about how things become fossils. I haven't really decided how I'll use it yet, but uh, that kind of a grant, uh, that size of a grant is enough to do um, a fairly major team project out there. So it's going to be great. But I can't imagine doing anything else but just turning it back into more discoveries and and more fun research. Dr. Anna Behrensmeyer is curator of vertebrae paleontology at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been really fun. Thank you, Tom. Earlier this week, we heard from Michelle Thompson from the Planetary Science Institute and Los Alamos National Laboratory. And Lisa Ainsworth of the Agricultural Research Service will post a link to all three interviews at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. When you think about something that brings out the best in us, it usually involves helping someone else. By donating plasma at a Griffel Center, you can help save millions of lives and show your good side to the world. You'll join thousands of people who donate safely each week. So patients get the plasma-derived medicines they rely on. And you'll be rewarded up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, If you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. 